Well, praise the Lord, amen? amen? What a rich time of musical congregational worship. That was truly a blessing. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis and the second chapter of Genesis. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. If you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Okay. This is God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet grown. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. Heavenly Father, we We are just delighted to be here this morning to open up your holy and inspired word. We pray that you would, again, change hearts through this text, that we would know you more, that we would know your ways, so that we can better worship you and give you the praise and exaltation that you and you alone deserve. Be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the words of that last song by Katharina von Schlegel have been a balm to weary souls of Christians for almost two centuries. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall forever be with the Lord. Disappointment, grief, fear, gone. Sorrows, forgotten. It's hard to even imagine such an existence, isn't it? Love's purest joys restored. What's she talking about there? What, what love and purest joy is she referring to there? What pure joy of love needs to be restored? Restored back to what? The answer is found in a period of time. A period of time that spans from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, all the way to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, a period of time which includes the entirety of the second chapter, which we're going to consider together over the next few weeks. And we have to dive right in here this morning. We have to dive right into the first point, because we have so much to get to, even in these first four verses. If you've been with us for any amount of time over these past few months, you'll know that we've been examining the first book of the inspired scriptures since the beginning of this calendar year, actually, uh, January 1, we've been in Genesis 1, starting at verse 1, where we heard of God, Elohim, the all-supreme, all-sovereign, all-powerful, almighty God of all creation, who demonstrated his sovereign, omnipotent strength in his creation of all things, in both the heavens and on the earth. We've heard of the world's and the world taking shape by his word alone, telling of his handiwork with no doubt the greatest testimony and the most 
declaration coming from this world that we're all seated upon this morning hearing his word. This, this planet, which was once formless and void, shapeless and uninhabited, but in less than a week's time was both formed and filled, swarming with life, teeming with living creatures, climaxing, of course, with God's creation of man on the sixth day. Man, the culmination of his creation, the crown of his creation. Man who, unlike the animals, unlike the swarming things, was created in God's image, in God's likeness, in the image of the triune God. And it's been a joy to consider together. Amen? Hasn't it been a joy? We love it. Last week, Chris took us through the first three verses of this second chapter, detailing the Almighty's resting from his work on the seventh day, though this wasn't a rest that was necessary due to exhaustion, but rather as an example to his people. It was an example from God to his people through Moses. He said, six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. He said, in six days... I made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. I rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It was an example for his chosen people. This almighty God, he needed no physical rest, for he does not sleep, nor slumber, nor tire. He has infinite, unlimited power, which is never depleted or diminished in the slightest. Having said that, there may be some wisdom in the word Words of an old preacher who said, First God created the universe and he rested. Then God created man and rested. He finally created woman, and since then neither God nor man has rested. (laughs) And we'll just move right along here. Now, I heard some amens, but I don't see your wife sitting next to you. Uh, Now, in my opinion, which really means nothing at the end of the day, but in my opinion, because of what we'll discover here in verses 4 through 7, it would have made far more sense for the first three verses of chapter 2 to be put in chapter 1. And I say that without any real hesitation, because as we know, the chapters and verses, though extremely practical and very beneficial in so many ways, are not a part of the inspired text. Chapters were added like 800 years ago. Verses weren't included until the mid-1500s. And again, though the chapter breaks were for the most part very well done, we know that in any such task undertaken by finite man, there's great possibility and even likelihood of error. And well, I feel like this is one of those cases. Verses 1 through 3. So let's move along. Uh, Verse 4 says this. You'll see why. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh God made the heaven, the earth, and heaven. This is one of those occasions when day indicates a general time period. In the day of Noah, for example. In the day of the judges, for example. Here, these are the generations in the day when Yahweh God made the heavens and the earth. The earth and the heaven. And actually, this word for generation or offspring or genealogy is the word toledos. 
It's a very important one, and one that we'll see throughout much of the first part of Genesis. It's a word that always precedes or comes before the account or narrative that the text goes on to describe. Meaning, the first part of this fourth verse is a superscription. Super meaning over, and scription meaning written, as opposed to a subscription. Sub meaning under what is written. Think of the Psalms. A Psalm of David. And then the words. A psalm of Asaph to the choir master. And then the words. Now why is this important? Because it means that the words that we're about to read in chapter 2 are not a summary of the whole creation account that we've examined together in chapter 1. But rather, it's an introduction to an entirely new section of Scripture. A new scene in Scripture which summarizes both that which will follow while also elaborating on, uh, providing specific details of events that took place on one of the days, day six of the creation week. And, And all in relation to its main character, besides God, of course, who is man. Okay, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And everything that follows from here on out, really from here to Revelation, the end of time itself, will be told in terms of mankind. Man's relationship to the earth, man's relationship to the animals, man's relationship with our fellow man, and most importantly, man's relationship with his creator. Does that make sense? To consider chapter 2 to be a complete summarizing of chapter 1 has caused some to mistakenly believe and then teach that there is contradiction within the creation account. But this is not so. Again, this word toledoth, or generations, is the same word used throughout all of Genesis to allude to what has happened while introducing, describing, and summarizing that which comes next, okay? Okay? Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Here's the Adam we just learned about for four chapters. Then Moses goes on to detail the generations of the narrative to come. Uh, Adam had a son named Seth. Seth had a son named Enosh. Enosh, the father of Kenan. All the way down to Lamech, who fathered Noah, who, comes in the main, who, who, who becomes the main character of the narrative. Genesis 6.9. These are the generations of Noah. Then we hear of Noah until chapter 10, Genesis 10. Now these are the generations of Shem, Ham, Japheth, the sons of Noah. Sons were born to them after the flood. Then then it goes through their lineage and on and on it goes. Same with chapter 5, chapter 36, chapter 37. All which introduce new sections describing the accounts to come. So again, Genesis 1. Day six, creation of man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, Genesis 2, verse 4. Generations of man. Now we're going to get into the testimony and description of that man's life here on earth. With an emphasis on all aspects of life as it pertains to man and woman. And we don't even get out of the fourth verse without seeing a monumentally significant component or aspect of man's life here on earth. The most, indeed, the most significant component. 
and that is man's relationship with his creator. Okay, this, this fourth verse sets the stage for everything that will follow. Everything that will follow, not just in the second chapter, not just in the generations of Adam or Noah, but in fact through all generations, and even including and up to today, even as it relates to you and to me and all people who have ever or will ever live. Look again at verse 4. What stands out as different from what we've heard in chapter 1? These are the generation of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. That's true. Earth and heaven is backwards. What else do you know that's different? That's right. Yahweh God. Not just God. Not just Elohim. Not just God the powerful, not just God the almighty, not just the great, supreme, infinitely strong creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, not, not, just, not, not some aloof, cold, distant, and detached, unknowable, unrelational God like Allah in Islam or Buddha or Krishna, but rather the personal, knowable, relational creator of the heavens and the earth, Yahweh Elohim. This is his personal covenant name, remember? We, we've looked at it. Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is on Mount Sinai before the burning bush. Go ahead and turn there. Look at Exodus chapter 3. And look at, at verse 5. Verse 5, he says to Moses, Moses, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God, Elohim, of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God He hides his face because this is God Almighty. This is the eternal creator, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega from everlasting to everlasting. The God who would go on to say through Isaiah, his prophet, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will stand, my counsel will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is powerful. It's it's authoritative, it's mighty, supreme, sovereign, transcendent. But then, his personal interaction with his creatures his intimate engagement with the crown of his creation. In verse 10, he tells Moses, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh. You you shall bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Look what Moses says in verse 13. Behold, I'm about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, Elohim, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. They will say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name from generation to generation. Yahweh. That's my name. That's what you are to call me forever. Even when you write down the testimony of the first days of the heavens and the earth. I'm not just Elohim, the mighty creator God. I am that, the only almighty God, but I'm also your God. You are my people. Look at verse 16. Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I indeed care about you. And what has been done to you in Egypt, so I said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I care about you? Yeah, I indeed care about you. Two billion Muslims out there in the world today, they don't know of such a God. The same God who sovereignly, omnipotently brought forth worlds, the sun, the moon, the galaxies, the stars, the earth, the seas, the mountains, the trees and plants, the animals, the one who created all things, all people, the one who knows everything about everything, is infinite in all his ways, who spoke everything into existence by his word alone, now has a word for his people. And he says to this trembling, stuttering, no sandal-wearing, face-hiding Moses at the top of this mountain, I care about you. I care about you. I care about my people. I cared for their fathers. I cared about Isaac and Jacob, Israel himself, and I cared about their fathers. I cared about Abraham and Noah. I made covenants with them, promises with them, promises to them. And I cared about Adam and Eve. I care for my people. So, Moses, you go and tell them, Yahweh has sent you. And that's what he does. And I'm here to tell you, he's saying the same thing to you this morning as well. He cares about you, at least in some sense. How do I know? Because you're alive (laughs) and sitting here hearing his word this morning. And if you truly belong to him, if you are truly one of his people through faith in his gospel, he has an everlasting love and care for you. A steadfast, loyal love that never fails. That's what he tells us in his word. 
His word, not only written through Moses in Exodus chapter 3, but clear back to the beginning on that sixth day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. As Moses now introduces the powerful yet personal name of God, Yahweh Elohim, Yehovah Elohim, the transcendent yet imminent, knowable God of all creation. One commentator said, in Genesis 1, Elohim refers to God's transcendence over the world, while in Genesis 2 and 3, Yahweh speaks of God's imminence with his elect. When the narrator combines the two names, he makes a bold assertion that the creation God is the Lord of Israel's history. Just as God ordered creation, he orders history. All is under God's sovereign control, guaranteeing that Israel's history will end in triumph, not in tragedy. Which is exactly what happened in Egypt, right? Now, of course, there are some within Christendom who just can't seem to help themselves in their vain attempts to be separate or unique or set apart from their peers have made some pretty wild claims and outrageous theories on this text, including those who say because of the way that Genesis 1 and 2 are structured and this changing of names, there must be two different authors. They would say Adam wrote Genesis 1, Moses wrote Genesis chapter 2. Or they would say that there must be two creation accounts, even suggesting that there was a pre-Adamic civilization which to me is right on par with the fish-legged monkey-men theories that we've been talking about. But most commonly, the, the objection that arises from liberal scholars is that there is a contradiction between the two accounts, that Moses made a mistake in the chronology of events, which then gives them the ability to attack biblical inerrancy as a whole. But I agree with James Montgomery Boyce, who called out such arrogance for what it truly is, Nonsense. It's nonsense. Quote, Indeed, we should be encouraged when we realize that until the rise of modern critical scholarship, no one seemed to have noticed that these two accounts were conflicting. Again, beware of the modern-day textual critics who speak, with wor- speak using words without knowledge. A lot of them are only trying to distinguish themselves from their peers to see who can out-criticize one another in an attempt to make a name for themselves in academia. It's so obvious to me. One of the ways that they do that is, again, uh, right here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Okay, this is one of their main, main objections here. So let's look at these verses together, see what all the kerfuffle's about. Can I say kerfuffle? Okay. If Thomas was here, he might give me a look. I don't know if that's a... Let's look at what all the kerfuffle's about. Moses writes this in verse 5. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet grown. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth, water the whole surface of the ground. Then... Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. Now hold on just a darn second here. What do you mean there was no shrub? 
No plant when God created man. We just spent all that time going through creation. Plants and trees were made on the third day, right? Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. Yep, that's right. That's what it says. Now you're telling me there were no plants when Adam was created from the dust? Okay then, second creation. Or, okay then, second civilization. No? Okay. Contradiction. To which I would say, just relax. (laughs) Calm it on down. Just relax. Let's look at this a bit deeper. Verse 5. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet grown, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. Now, I know what the critics are implying from this verse. Moses blew it with the plants. But who's to say that he wasn't just making a general statement about days one and two before skipping days three, four, and five, going right to day six? That's the position many reputable scholars take, and I think it's a good one. But there's an even better explanation that has me thoroughly convinced. Look again at five and six. No shrub, no plant, no rain, no man. What's a shrub? Well, the word is siach, commonly defined as a shoot of shrubbery or a bush, plants which are in abundance but largely inedible. In other words, weeds. Now, I know the old gardening confession, a weed is any plant that grows where you don't want it to grow. But then Moses goes on to say, actually, plants weren't there either. And the word for plant here is esev, esev. Well, we know there were plants. We just read it. Plants, esev, yielding seed, created, sprouting up out of the ground like that on day three. Plants, esev, same word. Now, no plants. Contradiction? Negative. Why not? Well, two reasons. Number one, almost as important as noticing where the similarities are in any given text is noticing where there are differences. Again, shrubs, not there in chapter 1. Plants were there in chapter 1. But one thing I couldn't help notice that was missing is, what kind of shrubs and plants are we talking about here? And what we see in chapter 2 that we didn't see in chapter 1 are shrubs and plants of the field. Of the field. In fact, this is the first time that we've seen this phrase, of the field. We'll go on to hear this phrase as we go along. The serpent, for example, is more crafty than any beast of the field. But we haven't heard about this of the field until now. Why not? Well, here's the second reason why chapter 2 doesn't lie in contradiction to chapter 1. What exactly are the shrubs and plants mentioned here in verse 5? And to answer that, I want to quote from the brilliant Jewish historian named Umberto Casuto, or Moshe David Casuto. Now, I had heard of Casuto before, even others who had referenced his work on Genesis, but this past week, Matt McChesney shot his commentary over to me, and I found this insight remarkable. Okay, so I'm going to read it. Casuto was an Italian Jew. He was a chief rabbi of Florence. He was the professor of Hebrew and literature in the University of Florence, and then the chair of the Hebrew language at the University of Rome. When the 1938 anti-Semitic laws forced him to flee, 
he accepted an invitation to fill the chair of biblical studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 1939, where he taught until his death in 1951. Now, I don't speak Hebrew, so it only makes sense to hear from someone who does. And there's none better among modern scholars, in my opinion, than this. This is a long quote here, but please pay attention. I'll put them up there so you can follow along. Pay attention to what this Jewish scholar and Semitic language expert says about the plants in this fifth verse, okay? He says this. What is meant by the siach of the field and the esev of the field mentioned here? Modern commentators usually consider the terms to connote the vegetable kingdom as a whole. Thence it follows that our section contradicts the preceding chapter according to which vegetation came into being on the third day. Dillman, for example, what a name, uh, states that the siach and esev, the most important categories of this vegetable world, represent the latter in its entirety. But it's difficult to concur in the view that siach and esev are the most important plants and worthy to be mentioned as representative of all vegetation, Others, like Proshk, suggest the opposite interpretation, namely, that even the siach of the field and the esev of the field were lacking. But there is nothing in the text corresponding to the all-important word even. All interpretations of this kind introduce something into the text that is not there in order to create the inconsistency. Wow. Now listen to what he says here. When the verse declares that these uh, species were missing, the meaning is simply that these kinds were wanting, but no others. If we wish to understand the significance of the siach of the field and the esev of the field in the context of our narrative, we must take a glance at the end of the story. Oh, you mean context? What a concept. Casuto says, quote, It is stated there at the end of the story in the words addressed by the Lord God to Adam after he has sinned, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the esiv of the field. The the words esiv of the field are identical with the expression in our verse while thorns and thistles, which are synonymous with the siach of the field, are a particularization of the general concept conveyed by the latter. Listen to this now. So important. These species did not exist or were not found in the form known to us until after Adam's transgression. And it was in consequence of his fall that they came into the world or received their present form. Man, who was no longer to able, able to enjoy the fruits of the Garden of Eden, was compelled to till the ground, 323, the same phrase as in our verse here, in order to eat bread. And the clause quoted above, and you shall eat the esef of the field, corresponds uh, to the words immediately following, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Thus, he says, The term esiv of the field comprises wheat and barley and the other kinds of grain from which bread is made. And it is obvious that the fields of wheat and barley and the like did not exist in the world until man began to till the ground. In the areas, however, that were not tilled, the earth brought forth of its own accord as a punishment to man 
thorns, and thistles. The siach of the field that we see growing profusely to this day in the land of Israel after it rains. End quote. Now, that's from a guy who knows the scriptures, knows the language, knows the history, and knows the land personally. And he says, the reference to shrubs in verse 5 is a reference to post-fall vegetation. New vegetation coming forth from a now-cursed earth. The vegetation that we all deal with in the post-fall world, weeds, our never-ending battle with weeds. I've got this sprawling, spreading, ground-covering, thorny something right out in front of my house. I cannot get rid of this. You wouldn't believe the chemicals that I've poured on this thing. I feel like Greta Thunberg is going to pop out from behind my garage and say, How dare you! I'm telling you, I've, I've dug it out, I've stomped all over it, I've mowed it down, I've lit it on fire. And yet, it still stands strong, mocking me at every turn. This siach, this shrub, this weed. And then the plants. There were already plants and trees when man was created, it's true, in abundance. Plants with seed, trees with fruit, plants for food, for consumption, for both Man and animals who weren't created until three days later. There were plants, but not these type of plants. While the plants present on day three were thriving and flourishing under the care of Yahweh God and his sovereign wisdom, knowing full well what was about to take place, he brought forth plants that coincided with his cursing of man. Plants which not only required a cultivation by those who would till the ground and earn their food, but would require another essential element to be able to grow in abundance. And what was that element? That's right, water, rain. Rain, which not only aids in the production of wheat required for bread, but also in producing weeds with which man will have to contend with while harvesting that wheat. That's a curse. Rain wasn't there before the fall. Many commentators believe it didn't show up until the flood in chapter 6. I'm not sure how they came to that conclusion, but we know this. It wasn't there until at least day 6, maybe not, until, uh, maybe not even until chapter 3. How do we know that? Well, Moses just told us in, in verse 6. Yahweh, God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, for there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth, water the whole surface of the ground. That word for stream is sometimes translated mist. I think in the King James has it uh, mist or vapor. But it's actually better translated streams or springs. Again, Casuto said the word aid refers here to the waters of the deep generally and to the springs issuing therefrom. Issuing therefore, issuing their thumb. Uh, we actually see this in verse 10 as well when Moses talks about the river that went out into the garden to water the garden. The ground itself was well irrigated, well saturated. The moisture didn't come down from the heavens, but rather up from the earth below. Now, I don't think that's such a stretch when we remember back in Genesis 1 that the earth in its original form was made up entirely of water. Remember that? The, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of 
the waters. Then he shaped it into a globe, and he summoned dry land, which popped up out of the water to form oceans and seas and lakes, rivers and streams. So why couldn't he have, been, why couldn't he, he have them brought up out of the waters from the deep in order to care for his plants and trees pre-fall, while at the same time also giving man a visible demonstration of either his blessing or judgment on his creation post-fall? Well, it seems clear to me that's what he did. And it seems abundantly clear to me again that there are no contradictions in the inerrant and infallible scriptures. Verses 4 through 7 are simply speaking of some things that weren't present before the fall of man but are present now. Therefore, I feel absolutely confident in labeling the contradiction theory, the two authorship theory, the two creation theory, the two civilization theory, along with most other theories as nothing more than speculative nonsense. Nonsense from people who have nothing better to do with their lives than to question and doubt the means by which their creator has chosen to reveal himself to us. As always, it's best just to take God's word in its plain, basic sense and meaning and in its proper context. And this certainly should be the rule when speaking of what comes next in verse 7. The creation and formation of man. Two creations of mankind? Of course not. It's absurd. A re-emphasis and more detailed description of the creation of man and woman that took place on day six? Bingo. That's right. In what is surely the final death blow to these evolutionary fables, whether atheistic or theistic, Moses writes in verse 7, Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the man became a living being. Derek Kidner has said this verse with profound simplicity both matches and completes the classic 127. There it was the nouns, image, likeness that related man to God. Here, the verbs for revelation is as often given in the story as in statement. And that's right. Look at the verbs here. He formed man from dust. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Yahweh God didn't create some cell and sit back with his arms folded, tapping his foot, looking at his heavenly watch (laughs) as he waited for this primordial ooze to take shape over 3.6 billion years until it grew to the point where he could name it Adam and have it standing upright in the garden. That's ridiculous. No, no, no. He formed man instantly from the dirt. From the dust, and then the woman, from the man. But ultimately, we are all made up of the earth. We are all men of the earth, created ex nihilo, from the dust. And then woman, from the man, but ultimately, we are all made up of earth. Uh, If you want to get into semantics here, from the dirt that was created ex nihilo. Either way, we're all dirt, okay? And this verse alone here, this seventh verse ought to quickly eliminate any weeds of pride that may be sprouting up from within our religious hearts. Our bodies are all dirt, dust, dust which covers our globe in abundance, by the way. You know, I couldn't believe it. There's a lady out there who wrote an entire book on dust. I'm not kidding. 254 pages on dust. 
No, no joke. Here's the description. Hannah Holmes is a cheeky science writer whose expertise lies in the conversion of molehills to mountains. For example, some see dust as dull and useless stuff, but in the hands of Hannah Holmes, it becomes a dazzling and mysterious force. Dust, we discover, built the planet we walk upon. Dust both tinkers with the weather and spices the air we breathe. Billions of tons of it rise annually into the air. The dust of deserts and forgotten kings mixing with volcanic ash, sea salt, leaf fragments, scales from butterfly wings, shreds of t-shirts, and fireplace soot. Wow. Billions of tons of dust, huh? Yeah, that's right. Listen to what she gleaned from, uh, I'm, uh, I can only assume, are some of the finest scientists and made service companies among us. <laughs> Quote, between one and three billion tons of desert dust fly up into the sky annually. One billion tons would fill 14 million boxcars in a train that would wrap six times around the Earth's equator. You got to them, give them credit there. They didn't put a 0.6 after that <laughs> three billion. These are incredible statistics. And frankly, I'm inclined to believe this cheeky lady. Because it's the greatest, you better check yourself, of all time. This is God's way of saying, let's get this straight right from the start. You better recognize. I I am from above, you are from below. I am God, there is no other, the only uncreated spirit from everlasting to everlasting, the eternal, holy, holy, holy creator of all things. And you? Well... I created you from one of the most common elements in all of existence. Dust. Dirt. That's us. That's what makes up our temporal body. We are dust. We are dirt. We are clay. We are mud. You know, maybe we ought to think about that the next time the temptation to lust over the body of a man or woman who are are not our spouses arises. You're, You're lusting after dirt. Maybe we ought to think about that the next time we desire to have the body that this person has or that that person has. Dirt. Maybe we ought to think about that the next time we give more of our time and energy to maintaining this temporal body of dust than we do our everlasting souls that reside within them. The scriptures are clear. We, man, Adam, In our original state, we're formed from Adamah, the ground. We were formed from the ground, named after the ground, forced to get our food from the ground, and into the ground we will return as a part of the curse, as death will come to us all because of one man's disobedience. Typically, in less than 100 years. You know that, young man? Less than 100 years, you're going to (laughs) die. We're all going to die. Our bodies will perish, return to the ground. Yahweh said to Adam in chapter 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. 
for you are dust. To dust you shall return. We're dust. Yahweh formed the first man from the dirt, and he formed the woman from the man, meaning she's of the earth as well, but not through some evolutionary process. Moses, reiterating Genesis 1.27, says, Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground. And again, just like everything else, it happened in an instant, just like that. Now, what did this formation look like? I don't know. Outside of what's said here, nobody knows. Nobody knows. God tells Moses he formed the man. There was, there was some dirt, and I formed him. Yes, sir. I fashioned him. I molded him. I squeezed him into shape. It's the same word used in Psalm 94. He who formed the eye, does he not see? He formed Adam like a potter forms a pot. In fact, this word yatser is used frequently throughout the Old Testament, including in Jeremiah chapter 18, as the word for potter. Jeremiah says, Then I went down to the potter's house. Yatser. And behold, he was making something on the wheel, but the vessel that he was making of clay was ruined in the hand of the potter. So he turned around and made it into another vessel according to what was right in the eyes of the potter to make. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares Yahweh? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, why does that sound so familiar to us? Because Paul references this passage in Romans chapter 9 when he talks about Yahweh's sovereign electing choice. As the divine potter makes vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. I'm just telling you what it says. Here Moses declared, Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground, just like he formed the animals, by the way. And he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, just like he did with the animals, by the way. Oh yeah, he'll say the same thing about all flesh, including the animals who perished by the judgment of his flood. Speaking of the flood in the 600 year of Noah's life. All flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last. That is birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, as well as all mankind, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on dry land, all that was on dry land, died. It's the same word here. Living things, those with souls, nephish. So the question is, what makes us any different from the animals? What was that? The image. That's right. We are created imaco Dei, in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Every human being that has ever existed or will ever exist or uh, will be created in the image of God, will be created in his likeness, capable of so much more than just animalistic, physical, and conscious living, but created with an intellectual, moral, and spiritual consciousness, the ability to relate intellectually, not only toward creation, not only toward other creatures and animals, not only with one another, 
But again, most importantly, our ability to relate with our creator. Adam, in his original state, in this original beautiful environment from Genesis 1.26 all through Genesis 2, not only had a perfect body, but also had perfect relationship with the creation, with the animals, with woman, and with his God. But Genesis 3 comes quick. It comes really quick. And all that goodness we've read about, all that perfection, including our being made in his image, is tainted. That, that union, that fellowship, the relationship is marred because of sin. Adam's sin and our sin. But originally because of one man's sin. Because of, because of one man's, Adam's, disobedience. As we'll see in our time next week, uh, God puts man on probation by giving him a direct prohibition. And wouldn't you know it, it has to do with vegetation. Yahweh commanded the man, saying... From any tree in the garden, you may surely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. From the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And spoiler alert, that's exactly what happens. Serpent tempts, Eve eats, Adam eats. They live physically but they die spiritually. So that perfect environment, that perfect dominion, that perfect relationship with our wives, that perfect, pure communion, that perfect love and fellowship enjoyed with our creator is over. It's over. It's been marred. It's tainted. Now, physical curse, weeds, Thorns, toil, strife, sickness, decay, death. Along with spiritual disappointment, grief, fear, sorrow, separation, alienation from creation, from one another, and most notably, from our God. And it's the environment that we've all lived in our entire lives. We know nothing else but this environment. It's all we've ever known. But it won't always be that way, will it? Which is why we sing in eager and hopeful anticipation of that which is to come. And we say to our souls, be still. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. When Disappointment, grief, and fear are gone. Sorrow for God and love's purest joy is restored. More on that next week. To close here, I want to encourage you that a day is coming, my brothers and sisters, when all things will be restored. Not only that, but there's coming a time when all things will be made new. Not only will this earth one day be restored to pre-fall condition at the return of the Lord as he reigns from his throne in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom, but at the end of those thousand years, he will destroy this earth, not by flood, but by fire. 
he will bring forth a new heavens, a new earth, where we shall be forever with the Lord, if, that is, we belong to him. You say, well, how do I know that I belong to him? This no disappointment and grief thing sounds pretty good. How do do I know I'm one of his? Well, you believe what he says about himself what he says about his creation, what he says about our condemnation, our just condemnation, and then what he says about the only way to restoration and salvation, salvation from an eternal hell apart from him, and salvation to eternal glory with him in that same new heavens and new earth. And that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Do you know of such restoration? Do you know of such salvation? Have you not only received the breath of life like all other humans and animals, but have you received the breath of eternal life? The pouring out of God's Holy Spirit into your heart by the sacrificial death of the Son who wore a crown of thorns was delivered up to die for all who would but believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation? If you're not absolutely sure, I I would implore you to ask him to make this a reality in your life. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Turn from your sin. Ask him to reverse the curse and restore right relationship with your everlasting soul. Ask him to save you this morning. I can assure you, This almighty yet personal God is both willing and able to do so today. Why? Because he cares about his people. Amen? Amen. Pray with me now. We'll have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for the privilege, the opportunity to come together here to open up your holy and inspired, inerrant, infallible word this morning and be instructed by it. We're just so grateful, Lord, that you have revealed to us, not only are you the supreme, almighty, sovereign creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, but that you indeed care for your people, that you are approachable, that you are knowable, you are relational, And that in your sovereign goodness and graciousness, you have even sent your son to die for our sin, to reconcile us to yourself and to restore this right relationship that we, as mankind, experience in the garden. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your gospel, and we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.